0: This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your
1: network. Today on Government Matters, one of the biggest healthcare care and IT projects in government hits the pause button. The acting Deputy Secretary of Veterans Affairs tells you what it'll take to start it up again. A deadline looms for every agency to go digital, and the pandemic is no excuse. To make that deadline, a seven-year plan at the National Archives is ready for prime time. And the number one story of the week, the CDC says agencies can mandate COVID tests when employees come back to the office. Can the agencies mandate shots, too? Government Matters starts right now.
0: From Washington, D.C., and around the world, this is Government Matters. With Francis Rose.
1: Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The electronic health records project at the Department of Veterans Affairs is on hold as the Secretary of VA, Dennis McDonough, conducts a review of the program. Dr. Carolyn Clancy, the acting deputy secretary of VA, told the House Veterans Affairs Technology Modernization Subcommittee this week, VA won't roll out the EHR at new locations until the review's complete and Congress can see what the agency found. Dr. Clancy's my guest to talk about the program and the review. Dr. Clancy, welcome, thanks for joining me today. What exactly are you reviewing at VA about the EHR program?
2: So we are reviewing all aspects of the program. First, it's important, uh, I think, for listeners to know that we went live during a pandemic in uh, October of 2020, uh, not for the faint of heart. It is my understanding that some other implementations of electronic records were postponed altogether, uh, but we did not do that. And implementing an electronic health record any place is um not for the faint of heart. It uh, is challenging. It makes you rethink everything you do all day. And we encountered some challenges, which is not remotely surprising. Uh, But we were concerned when after a number of weeks, productivity in a number of areas had still not returned to anything Uh, like a normal level and we thought it was very important to investigate so three executives from the Veterans Health Administration went out for a very intensive two to three day visit and came back with a report and based on that report we thought it was uh, very important a to work very hard with our colleagues in Spokane uh, to help them solve their issues but also to step back and say um how do we make sure that all components of this massive project which is hugely important uh, and very very important to veterans and i would argue to american healthcare, care uh, that we're now going to be uh, joining and creating one seamless lifetime record for veterans from the time they start as active duty service members uh, to when they become veterans um that is going to be just a huge undertaking and I think will position us well to lead in American healthcare.
1: Um, you referenced the challenges that Mann-Grandstaff ran into uh, in implementing this. Um, uh, one of the uh, witnesses at the hearing that I referenced a moment ago said VA employees in Spokane raised a total of 247 patient safety concerns since the EHR went live last October. Did you have a context for what you expected for the potential challenges that existed either inside VA or did the vendor provide you any kind of guidance? Here are the potential pitfalls we could run into as we roll this out, Dr. Clancy.
2: Well, you know, that has been a focus of ongoing conversation and frankly has become something of understood uh, common wisdom, if you will, across healthcare. Uh, In general, when you have to learn a new system, you expect drops in productivity, right? Because you've got to think about every step, particularly many steps that used to be Uh, sort of autopilot. Um, VA has been working very hard on this for the past several years, literally looking at all of our workflows uh, so that we would be prepared. But even being prepared going in uh, does not mean you're not going to have challenges. Uh, We also hit some challenges with training uh, induced by the pandemic. So uh, for example, some of the training uh, that Cerner would provide Uh, is what is called at the elbow support. Well, you can't do that if you're social distancing and so forth. So based on this, uh, we actually created uh, a variety of tiger teams that are working on clinical workflow optimization. This is not a technical issue, right? This is how healthcare is provided. Uh, An EHR IT in general can enable and empower that work, but actually it's about the people part. Um, and that's where we've been focusing a lot of our attention at that facility.
1: The team that you referenced a moment ago, Dr. Clancy, that went out and looked firsthand at what was going on there. When they brought back brought back uh, their uh, findings and prepared that report, what was the genesis of that? Was that no pun intended? Was that the uh, the impetus for this review, looking at that material and saying we need to take a break and really try to solve some of these problems before we roll it out other places?
2: That was an important uh, motivating factor. I wouldn't say it was the only one. Uh, before he was confirmed, uh, Secretary McDonough actually spoke to leaders of some large health systems that had also implemented Cerner. And uh, I, you know, at this point in time, we thought it was a very good idea to step back and say, do we have the governance right? Do we have the decision making right? We've, uh, do we have the right metrics in place for evaluating success? So we've got about eight week work streams uh, moving and people are working very, very hard. Um, What we also saw in Spokane that I think is really, really important was how proud and excited our colleagues were to be first and how much they wanted to get it right so that they could then go on to help their colleagues in Columbus and Columbus, Ohio and subsequent sites that will deploy. And that to me was the most inspiring part of that report.
1: We have about a minute left, Dr. Clancy. uh, The Defense Department, the military health system, is moving forward with its expansion of its Cerner system. Do you have a sense of what the differences and similarities are that are allowing the Defense Department to continue while you're on this pause?
2: Well, it's important to know that they started about uh, two or three years before we did. And we have wasted no effort whatsoever in learning all of the lessons that they've learned. So they've been and will continue to be vital partners in this effort.
1: Dr. Carolyn Clancy, thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Up next, the path to paperless records at the National Archives. Straight ahead on government matters, the coming deadline to go digital. You're watching 7 News. Welcome back. The National Archives and Records Administration is supposed to stop accepting paper records from agencies by the end of 2022. The agency, those taking another look at that goal after the pandemic put digitization work on hold at some agencies. Sheena Burrell the deputy chief information officer at NARA. Sheena, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What are you looking at both internally and externally in this goal to stop taking paper records by the end of next year?
3: Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, NARA is continuing to work with the other a- agencies to meet the goal through our annual records management process. From a technology perspective, NARA CIO's office has worked with our current cloud service provider, Amazon Web Services, or AWS, to determine the potential path forward for AWS to AWS transfers. In addition, we're also thinking through transfers with other cloud service providers to AWS. I think the biggest impact on agencies right now is kind of what you said is the ability to digitize those records that are not already electronic. This is an area where the pandemic has had a significant impact.
1: Has most of the impact been at the agencies or has most of the impact been uh, within NARA or is it kind of a combination of both, Sheena?
3: I actually think it's a combination of both. Um, this pandemic has really been hard for all of us, I mean, personally and professionally. From a records management perspective, we know, for example, that the closure of NARS federal record centers or reduced services has had an impact on fulfilling the Freedom of Information Act requests, providing services to the public and veterans. In addition, COVID-19 has impacted our records management operations, including scheduling records and digitization projects, to name a few. However, if there's one thing we've learned during COVID is that agencies have genuinely recognized that electronic government is not optional. It's essential. Still, before, during, and after COVID, our message is the same, that we're committed to the modernization for the good of the federal government and for our customers. And we inside of NAR are gonna continue to build upon the foundation laid by the Obama administration to help transition each of the agencies to a fully electronic government.
1: Sheena, Federal News Network reports, uh, four federal record centers are still closed and the remaining centers are either in phase one or phase two of reopening. What does that look like as far as potentially pushing your Your deadline is that something that you're considering right now, or are you aiming now more toward how do we catch up and make the deadline of the end of next year?
3: I think there is multiple things that we're doing. Um, We are monitoring COVID-19 situations in all areas of the country. We have um, conversations constantly about one meeting the goal what we can do to, from from a deadline perspective we are trying to catch up but we also are trying to work on um just different conversations with omb that for, to to help see if it's going to be any changes to that joint memo we haven't had those conversations yet with omb but we do expect them to happen
1: you mentioned a moment ago people are understanding as a result of the pandemic that digital government isn't optional what, how has that manifested itself in the way that the agencies deliver whatever it is they're delivering to you? Are they trying to move more quickly? Are they uh, move it, doing their internal digitization and transformation efforts more quickly? What are you seeing as a result of that, Sheena?
3: I actually don't know if we're seeing any more digitization happen. Uh, we are trying to digitize as much as possible. We're working with other federal record centers. Um, we're working with the VA to do some digi- digitization efforts with them. Uh, but honestly, what we're seeing is we're waiting for information from our annual uh, requests from the agencies. Once we get that feedback, then we can really see what position the agencies are in to actually meet that request.
1: What have been some of the most difficult challenges the, the pandemics presented inside NARA? What has it, is it just access to facilities? and people working remotely in that dispersal of work or is there some other thing that has affected the agency
3: i think it is the access to the facilities and some of these locations as you mentioned we're in phase one or phase two but some areas of the country we're not actually in the buildings at all so actually being able to come into the buildings and digitize those records is, is a challenge and that's some of the challenges that we're trying to meet today and we're putting different processes in place in order to streamline our work process and to reduce the technician to technician contact with the COVID-19 six feet apart kind of standards. Um, So those are some of the things that we're challenged with right now. Um, But those are things that we're working to overcome
1: so it sounds like maybe the the challenge there is just whatever's happening on the ground in the areas of each of those uh, record centers to determine how soon you can get people back and then I guess also how quickly folks can get vaccinated and feel comfortable and confident coming back to work is that a fair read
3: that is a fair read that's absolutely right
1: what do you, do? You are you able in that context then to set a timeline, Sheena, or is this just dependent on what the events on the ground are around each of those record centers?
3: I think that it depends on not only our record centers, but what the other agencies are able to do on their end. I think the, the biggest part for the agencies themselves is the proper management of all records electronically, including digitization of legacy records, with the appropriate metadata according to our standards. I think that's the most important aspect of federal government actually reaching this goal. Um, while we do need to have open record centers to help with FOIA requests and actually being able to digitize records, I think that there's some work on the agency's part as well.
1: Sheena Burrell, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you back.
3: Thank you so much, thank you for having me.
1: Up next, the number one story of the week. Your agency could make you take a COVID test before you come back to the office. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what your agency can and can't do as it reopens. You're watching 7 News. Welcome back. Now the number one story of the week. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says federal agencies can mandate COVID-19 tests for their employees as they come back to the office. But the CDC's website says the government doesn't mandate vaccines. Jerry Buckholtz is former Chief Human Capital Officer at NASA. She's Strategic Advisor at the Charles F. Bolden Group. Dan Meyer is Managing Partner at Tully Rinke. Friends, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Jerry, I start with you. What should employees expect and what should they expect to hear from their agencies as they start to come back to the office?
4: I think it's really important that um, plans are developed that include a comprehensive communication strategy and that those are developed in partnership with agencies' labor partners. Now is a really great time to enlist your labor partners to help you with this. It is a big challenge. There is no one on the planet It has expertise in reconstituting the U.S. federal government following a worldwide pandemic. There are going to be missteps. There are going to need to be adjustments. So my bottom line advice is remain flexible.
1: Dan, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. I note that the CDC's website says that it does not mandate, uh, the government doesn't mandate vaccines for employees. A cynic this week said to me, yet. Can the government at some point in some function or other, or in all functions, mandate its employees to have vaccines before they show up for work?
5: Okay, so let's keep some things in separate boxes here. There's vaccination and there's testing, uh, two very different worlds. Uh, It's pretty clear on testing uh, that that can be required in the workplace, but it is subject uh, to the uh, Rehabilitation Act, the um, Civil Rights Act, the EEOC regulations. So somebody with a COVID condition uh, is protected and you need to make uh, reasonable accommodations for those individuals. And that's exactly why you need to have the communications plan that uh, Jerry spoke of and how you have to map this out ahead of time. How do you uh, deal with the information both in terms of what the employee receives, uh, how do you protect their private medical information once you collect it? and, And how do you convey to the employee uh, that there is the ability to get a reasonable accommodation if they have uh, a condition. That's all testing. As far as the vaccine, remember, this was rolled out as as a experimental process. We all just got jabbed, or many of us just got jabbed twice, uh, basically in trusting authority that there wouldn't be a problem. So that really uh, limits the the requirement to have a vaccine. This is not like the smallpox vaccine uh, used to be for schools. Back in the day, where you showed up, first grade, your mother took you in to get jabbed because that's what was required because that was a thoroughly tested and vetted vaccine. We pushed this one out in record time. So until uh, those studies show that, uh, this is as a stable, uh, vaccination regime as the ones we're all familiar with from our youth, uh, the, the, requirement is not going to be there. And, uh, so what you have to keep testing and vaccination separate, uh, the rules are pretty clear that they can be tested. Uh, But you can't exclude somebody from the workplace uh, once you uh, have that uh, uh, knowledge. And then the other thing is that the the Biden administration has been very clear that they want to work to make sure people are accommodated. And so managers and supervisors and leadership should be flexible. Use teleworking where it's required and communicate and work with employees to win over their partnership Uh, in getting ourselves out of this pandemic.
1: Dan, just very quickly, is the recourse path that employees have if they think somebody at their agency hasn't acted correctly about the return to work the same as for other issues?
5: Yes, there's been no special rules for federal employment law on the pandemic. Uh, We're working within the EEOC, Department of Labor Structure. If an employee has an adverse action taken against them, uh, that triggers the response. In the response, lawyers, armor up and come in with the Civil Rights Act, Title V provisions. The Rehabilitation Act of 1973 is really important in this case. So it's the exact same process that the employees have known for uh, the past 20, 30 years.
1: Jerry, where do you see the biggest potential for an agency to make a misstep, as you alluded earlier? And every other expert that I've talked to has said there will be issues. I don't suppose Mm -hmm. that they'll be intentional. I think they'll be all accidental. But What do agencies do to try to mitigate those mistakes as much as possible?
4: I think there are two things agencies need to focus on. The first is phased implementation. Focusing first on those employees that must be physically on work site in order to do their jobs, because for example, they work almost exclusively with classified material. The second would be groups of people that have significant interaction with the public where they may be exposed or they may expose others. So setting up an implementation schedule that allows you to do smaller groups of people at a time and add people in as you get have greater expertise. The other thing is, this is not unlike restarting the federal government after the big shutdown. We've got groups of people who have been coming in every single day during the pandemic. We have groups of people who have been working virtually the entire pandemic. We have groups of people who've been on emergency. You need a strategy for each three of those groups and you need a plan to glide them back together into a single workforce. And then finally, as I always say, every opportunity I have, focus on virtual work. You should have a plan to extend your virtual work capabilities to at least the end of FY 2020.
1: Um, Very quickly, Jerry, what do you see as the long-term changes coming to remote work as a result of this? Is it here to stay finally?
4: It is here to stay finally. Um, We were always going to this place. We were going to get here probably in about 10 years. We've had 10 years of evolution in 12 months. It's been a big shock to the system, but one of those can happen anyway. So just embrace this and consider this a jumping off point and expand your virtual work capabilities for the benefit of your employees and also for the benefit of the citizens you serve.
1: Dan, 20 seconds, where's the biggest potential for an agency to go wrong in dealing with its employees coming back?
4: It's right
5: what Jerry said, it's on the communications end. I I would imagine the bulk of complaints that will emanate from this process of starting back up again will come from poor communication uh, and, and, and the inability of leadership to bring their team on board with what is going to be a massive effort. This is exactly what Jerry said, it's like restaffing after uh, the government shutdown.
1: Dan Meyer, Jerry Buckholtz, thanks very much for joining me. Appreciate your time. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every show when you sign up for our daily program guide. You just text govmatters to 58671. Back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose.
0: Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes about how government can use software to find wide area networks to deliver the best digital experience for constituents and
1: staff. Government agencies are continuing the transition to the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions Vehicle EIS for telecom related services. Industry experts are calling on agencies to use it for citizen facing government. Tony Bardo is here. He's assistant vice president for government solutions at Hughes Network Solutions. Tony, welcome. It's good to talk to you again. What does the EIS vehicle provide for agencies to make these kinds of transitions, to do the network modernization that they need to do?
6: It's a great question, uh, as you always do lead off with uh, Francis, and it's good to see you got to talk to you again. But uh, here's, it, it's more interesting really to talk about what it hasn't uh, delivered yet. And uh, GSA fa- faced an interesting conundrum when they were uh, putting EIS together and it was necessary to do so and they had the right vision for it and the right ideas to bring in some new blood and new new vendors and new kinds of companies. But the, the services available to to the government at the time were still the same services that have been around for 20 years. Um, and that is the the MPLS network um, services that worked during the end of FTS 2001 and throughout the network's contract. So um, the, the, the new services, the new modern services were just emerging. These are the new SD-WAN, the Managed Broadband Services. And these are the kinds of services that are better equipped for handling the large surge and surges of bandwidth demand for the agencies, particularly at the edge. So what was what the agencies were sort of presented with was, here's a new contract, and it's got a new timetable and it's got a new scope of work and a new span of work and a new body of of a performance period. But it didn't really have the new services that Met the goal or the the mantra of transforming. So what we saw in some of the early um, fair opportunities that uh, that the agencies were issuing, and it really took them a long time to start issuing them, um, but they 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 were basically asking for like for like services, and that wasn't really a Uh, a plan for transforming. And it didn't, many of the fair opportunities unfortunately did not show the the vision for transforming. SD-WAN was emerging, so it was a tough call. It was a, you know, we've got to get this contract, new contract out because the old contract is aging it's expiring it's got its uh limited time frame so it was an interesting um you ask an interesting question the platform really wasn't ready there to to uh to transform and leap into transformation and modernization it's starting to happen though
1: you uh gave me a term before we started recording and i want to tell want you to tell me what it means and why it's important managed service provider why does that matter to agencies, and and why is that concept helpful to them in these transitions, Tony?
6: The concept concept is really helpful because the the, pro, the providers and the services and managing them um, makes it easier for the agencies. These these agency telecom managers have really got it tough. They 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 have this they have this contract that they were. Ah, uh, compelled to use and and encouraged to use, and they wanted to modernize. Uh, they're running their own networks today. Every day, they have to issue these fair opportunities to compete the business among the uh, providers, the the prime uh, contractors on EIS, and they've got to do it all at the same time and all with the same workload and workforce that they that they have. So these are really, really tough. Getting, obtaining managed services takes the burden off of the limited staffs of the agencies and lets the, lets the um, service providers do the work. So managed service providers can then um, offer these services, manage the networks, manage the uh, security aspects of the networks, manage the routing of the traffic on the networks through the modern architectures of
1: broadband,
6: managed broadband, and managed SD-WAN.
1: Tony, there's always more great ideas to talk about than there is time to talk about them. It's great to talk to you again. Thanks very much. Thank you, Francis. Take care.